0: Well, let me say at the outset, uh, it's a great joy to be back. Uh, This is actually coming home. Born, raised in Wheaton, 1010 Howard Street, home school, which now houses a college theater program. Wheaton North Falcons, give it up for the north side. I told some guy this morning I was in high school, I noticed he had a Wheaton North shirt on. I said, yeah, I went to Wheaton North. He looked at me, you know, as an old man like I am. I said, back in the 70s. And he said, wow. <laughs> Met my wife here. We knew each other in fourth grade. Grew up on the same street. Take a good look at your fourth grade school picture. You just never know then to come back this week work with Josh uh, Brian Chapel as well training 84 pastors and teaching the word what a great joy it's been they really came from all over the world i met a guy this week from kazakhstan he was back there training people in the word costa rica brazil kenya i got invitations to go all over the world now i don't think i'm going to kazakhstan Live now on the south side of Chicago. Been gone 13 years this month. We, we left. It's a joy to be here. Scripture reading, I, I chose a text. A couple months ago they called and said, we need your text soon. And, you know, being a little church like mine, I thought, you've got to be kidding me. This is like two and a half months ahead of time. So I, I gave them Joshua five thirteen to 15. The reason was because our conference this week was about how do we preach Christ from all the Bible, and I knew that we were going to spend some time in Joshua. And, and because I'm preaching on Romans 9 today at 4 o'clock, I wanted something that was a little shorter. So take a look, Rome, uh, Joshua 5, 13 through 15. I'm sure there's a Bible near you. If you didn't bring one, it might help you to see it. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. Did so. Now, when we meet Joshua in this text, we are walking into his life literally on the eve for the moment for which he had been born. It's another way of saying he's not a young man. He's outgrown the days when the narrator informed us that Joshua was called the son of none, Moses' assistant from his youth. Not so here. Nor was he simply a man among other men. Not at this point in his life. There was really one other person in all of the narrative that runs kind of with Joshua in the same sentence, a guy by the name of Caleb. What a valiant warrior Caleb was. But even Caleb had not risen to the present stature of Joshua. If you're unfamiliar with the narrative, Joshua opens with all the people, Caleb included, saying to Joshua... All that you have commanded us, we will do. Wherever you send us, we will go. Whoever rebels against your word shall be put to death. He is not a young man. He is not a man among men. He is the preeminent man in the prime of his life on the eve of the moment for which he had been made. He was the unquestioned commander-in-chief. And he had already borne the battle scars... Of war, He had taken life and he knew what it was to do so. You remember that day uh, Moses' strength was flagging and Aaron and Hur come on either side and hold up his arms? Well that's ancient history now. And Joshua was the man on the field of battle. He knew what it was to do war. He was valiant. And his word in the community, the assembly, was without parallel. Because it had been vindicated time and time and time and time again. He had continually demonstrated himself to be right at critical moments. Forty years had passed since he and Caleb said, let us go into the land to possess it, and the rest were fearful and not ready. Joshua, not a young man, not a man among men, a valiant man, a vindicated man, the man, on the eve of the moment for which he had been made. So it doesn't surprise us then that when we open the text, he's doing what we would expect of him, He's on his own. There's, there's no other confidence here. There aren't confidence for such men. And he's taking stock of the situation for the morning light. And he's testing the loyalty of every soldier. That's what leaders do. Take a look at the way the text opened. And Joshua was by Jericho. The preposition there could literally be in. He was in the vicinity of the city that he would begin to take. He was the one who was going to bring them into their inheritance. He's doing personal recognizance on the eve of battle. He's doing what you do. He's getting an up-close look at the opportunity cost. He's taking mental note of the materials needed. He's devising a strategy that will undoubtedly exploit the weakness of his competitor. He's asking questions. How many men will I need? Where will I need them? And when should they come? He's isolating the best approach. He's carving out his niche. The opening phrase reminds me of something that Jesus will say in Luke's gospel many, many years later, where Jesus says, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying this man began to build and was not able to finish. Well, evidently, what is true for building things is equally true for dismantling things. What's true for the wisdom and the leadership necessary to erect a tower is equally true for the ministry of destructing a city. You ever take stock of your situation? I don't know where you've come in here today. Some of you, though, are standing on the Eve of the moment for which you have been made ever look to take new territory for Christ or whatever you need next ever decided you're going to get something done before you die that's what I used to tell my kids all the time couple things you got to do in life one trust Christ second get something done As the text unfolds, we're going to see that as important and essential as taking stock and testing loyalty is, it's not the end all. I think that's something for us to remember. Take a look. He's not just taking stock. He's testing loyalty. Look at 13b. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And I love this. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversary? Here's a man behind, in a sense, enemy lines on someone else's territory in the midst of the evening hour without any backup. Nobody knows he's there, and he doesn't flee when he meets a soldier with a drawn sword. He just approaches him and says, in a sense, he says what Shakespeare does with his guys in Hamlet. Stand ho, who goes there? It, it has that ring to it. Friend or foe? That's really what he's asking. You with me or not with me? I mean, what, just the confidence of him. I mean, this is leaders as we love them. This is what we do in politics, right? You ensure the vote before it ever comes to the table. With me or not? It's what we do in the academy through footnotes. Everybody wonders why all these academicians use so many silly footnotes. Why? Because they're testing the loyalty of every soldier. They are making their alignments known and their allegiances clear. This is what you do at home. Whether you're trying to raise some kids on your own and your mother or father or grandfathers are helping you or neighbors or whether you're a two-parent family and you got, you're saying, look, we've we got to be on the same page here. This is what young church planters do before they ever have a session or a board of elders. They go, look, I don't know what we're doing, but when we go through that door, we're going with one voice. you with me or against me? The change, of course, is... Uh, about to come for Joshua in a moment's time, he's going to see that even with all that important work of taking stock and testing loyalty, he's not ready. Which is quite striking, really, because in the chapter, the people are ready to go in. They've been recircumcised, or I guess circumcised for the first time. They are now retaking the Passover. The people are ready, but, well, the guy in charge actually isn't yet. A lesson to be learned. The change, of course, comes when the identity of a soldier becomes known. So let's take a look. Who is this soldier with drawn sword? There are four subtle indicators in the text. And when you get a little better understanding of it, it actually leads you into one of the most complicated but fascinating character sketches in all the Bible. Verse 13, he's simply called a man. No reason to think otherwise. He's a man. But verse 14, when he describes himself, he does throw, through this title, the commander of the Lord's army. And then in the narrative that follows, you're going to see that this man, this commander man, actually evokes the respect of someone like Joshua, and he actually demands worship from him. Who is this? Well, let me begin just... uh, I don't want to flip you around in the Bible too much because we got a little text there and it's so tight and we should stay in it. But just look back for a moment to Exodus 23. You see, Joshua is a story about how God was going to bring his people into the land and into their inheritance. It's a story that actually models the story of the whole Bible. For Joshua, in the end, doesn't give people the rest Jesus ends up giving you an eternal rest, something that's yet in the future. But there was this enigmatic promise, Exodus twenty-three twenty, that an angel of the Lord would be the one to go in. Verse 20, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. These are important words. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries when my angel goes before you and brings you. What a shadowy promise. Flip over just a little further. Exodus 33, verses 1 to 3. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. Here it is, verse 2. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. This Angel of the Lord runs throughout the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord is the one that appeared to Gideon when he gave him his marching orders in Judges 6. The angel of the Lord is the one that rescued Hagar and assured her of God's covenantal care for her in Genesis 16. An angel of the Lord is the one who supposedly came and rescued Isaac. On the altar at Genesis 22, an angel of the Lord is the one that wrestled with Jacob on that frightful night when he finally surrendered it all. On two occasions, the angel of the Lord in the Hebrew Scriptures actually appears with a sword drawn, as he does in our text. And interestingly, both times he appears with the sword drawn, it's to confront someone before the action is taken. The first time, of course, is with Balaam, where Balaam, that man in ministry, wanted to accommodate his message so that he could secure his own funding and live in his own ways. And so the angel of the Lord comes and says, Balaam and your ass, not, you will not pass here. It's this confrontational situation. The other is with the great ruler David, who has accomplished so much, and at the, at the end of the life, he is so close to finishing and finishing well that he's fought so many battles valiantly. And then he, he takes count over, over all his people, and the angel of the Lord confronts him. The angel of the Lord comes to Joshua on this moment, this appearance somehow the Old Testament has these things called a theophany two words a manifestation of God you know Genesis 12 it talks about God speaking to Abraham but by the time you get to verse 7 it says that God is appearing to Abraham Genesis 22 it says that when God had finished talking to Abraham he went up from him this appearance. This man, Joshua 5 verse 14, can be no one other than a prefiguration in this kind of opaque biblical fashion of the incarnate Christ, the commander of the Lord's army. In one sense, a man identified as such, and therefore distinct from God, but in another sense, divine, for it is clear that he possesses a unity or essence with God that is not to be destroyed. Joshua stands before this one, before the, before the incarnate one who came in a crash. Who would grow up to give an itinerant ministry of comfort. Who would, by his own intention, go to the cross. Who would, by the power of God, be raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, given the kingdom, the land, all the earth, all authority, over all people, for all time. That's who's here. All authority. Over all people. For all time. The only moments when Jesus appears in the New Testament as this kind of figure, it's in apocalyptic literature, it's in Revelation, where both at the beginning and the end, he appears not in some crash but with a sword coming from his mouth and in 19 on a horse that he's riding victoriously slashing through the vineyards of the world separating out the harvest of those who are following him and those who are not this Jesus he stands before Have you stood before this one? Boy, it's kind of silly now. If I'm Joshua right now, I'm going, oh my word. What did I just say? I said, are you for me or against me? Huh... And I love the response, no. <laughs> just this air by way of category. Just a, it's a categorical error. You, you're asking the wrong questions. No. Reminds me of Abraham Lincoln, that great president, who in the midst of the Civil War was exiting the, a science convention hall in D.C., And someone cried out, Mr. President, we trust that during this time of trial in which the nation is engaged, God is on our side and will give us the victory. And then Lincoln, with all that Illinois sensibility, says, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My concern is to be on God's side, For God is always right. What a lesson. Joshua had learned it and needed to continue to learn it and he particularly needed to know it on the eve of this battle, big battle before him. You'll be ready to lead when you know you are being led by this one. Don't you love that phrase he says to him? Now I have come. There's just so much comfort in those words. For those of you here today who continue to give it everything you've got in establishing a relationship with God, Remember, the book of Joshua is about crossing over. It's about people who are getting in. It's about this inheritance that can be received that Joshua himself doesn't ultimately provide, but that Jesus provides. And here's the one who looks at you on this Sunday morning and says to you, now I have come this morning. Have you seen me this morning? The exalted, risen Savior who has fought all your battles beat, all your enemies vanquished them, is now ascended and willing and ready to fight for you. I mean, what a wonderful thing. Some here today encountering that one for the first time in life. I'm sure there are others here who began following this one long before. You're no longer a young man or woman. Some of you, not even a man among men, valiant, vindicated in wisdom, needing this fresh word of grace again for today and what you have tomorrow You must stand before this one. He comes. He does the battle. He does the heavy lifting. He secures the victory. You just need to stay in line. Some of you, I'm sure, are on the verge of crossing over. You come this morning, you know your days are numbered. It won't be long. You'll be home. I don't know if the Fritz family's here. Sharon's certainly not far. This one secures your inheritance. There's comfort there. Some of you are really young. Grade school. Junior high. High school. This is the Jesus you need in your mind. He reigns. He rules. And you need to start now. With Him. That's where the Joshua has come from. So, what does he do? What, do? what do we need to do through what we see Joshua do? Three things. First, he demonstrates a readiness for worship. Verse 14 And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped. That's what you need to do. Not your own works. Not, not suck it up one more day. Not find a way to take down the wall tomorrow. What you need today is this. Fall on your face and worship. He has come for you. Do you know what it is? Have you I hope you've known this posture. I hope that the events of your life have brought you at some point, in my life, multiple points where you are in your office, you are in your home, you are in your bedroom, you are in your kitchen, you might even be in church, and you have to do nothing but fall on the ground, hands outstretched, legs flailing beneath, Face in the carpet, nose in it, tears falling. Lord God, I cannot do tomorrow. And I worship you because you are the victorious warrior whom I follow. Thank God I'm not even responsible to do tomorrow. You will do tomorrow. I worship you. Secondly, he's receptive to word. This is a phenomenal moment. Look how he's changed. He says, What does my Lord say to his servant? This is what always happens when people get a fresh awakening to the, to the value, the ministry, the supremacy, the sufficiency of Christ. Immediately he, here's the guy that's always barking out all the orders, and now he finally he has one thing to say, and it's what will you say? That's where you need to rise tomorrow morning. Open his word and repeat these words. What does my Lord say to his servant? A receptivity to word begins to massage on the soul and embolden and enable life to come from you. Third, there's a removal of the ways of the world And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. Evidently, wherever Jesus is, is holy ground. There's something about his presence that is absolutely pure, lovely, good, forgiving, grace-filled, strengthening, And it's the one place in the world where our shoes come off. I don't care if you're wearing Doc Martens out of here and you got them laced up just beneath your knee. In the presence of the living God, they come off. I don't care if you're working on a truck tomorrow and you wear steel-toed shoes because you're aware of the dangers you're going to confront. They come off. I don't care if, like me this morning, you got waxed laces and you love the way they're tight and they never move. They come off. And the ways of this world come off. I don't know what you're running in. I don't know what you're running to. I don't know what you're running from. But it all comes off. Let me paraphrase it. I'm not a paraphrased person. I'm not going to come out with the Dave Helm paraphrase. But if I were to paraphrase verse 15, this is the way it sounds to me. Dave, don't think you can bring that dirt in here and leave it on my carpet. <laughs> because we got a lot to do tomorrow. Here's the interesting thing. The text starts with Joshua taking stock and testing loyalty. And here we are, three verses later, and what's happened? I, I, I realize again, God is taking stock and testing loyalty. That's what God does. And this is what's so beautiful about the way the text ends. Do you see it? They are the most precious words in all the text. Four simple words. And Joshua did so. I mean, don't you love that editorial gloss? That is an editorial gloss that tells me it can really happen for you too. Here's this great, valiant, vindicated, warrior, godly, who's doing great things. And he did so. Hey, when, you, when you're in front of Jesus, you're, you're, you're on holy ground. There's that chorus, you know. Okay, you're going to hate me for it. You're going to laugh when you get home. But here it is. We are standing on holy ground. And there are angels all around. We will praise Jesus now. For we are standing in his presence on holy ground. You get there. He'll take you home. Get there. Because there's a heck of a lot of work to do. Our Heavenly Father, I commit these dear, lovely friends to you. Minister to each according to their need. For our needs are many, but your victory is secure. Strengthen and save people today. In Christ's name, amen.